From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and what are we going to do this week? Well, you know what? I want to go back to the past, or rather, I want to bring the past into our present. It's time that we had a nice bowl session on the past tense. It's a very interesting subject, and it plays into something that I'm asked a lot about English, which is our past forms and how so many people quote unquote get them wrong, or you know what I'm going to say, how squishy and variable they are, how in so many cases we can't really say that there's a right or a wrong form, but you know, we are all human beings. And you know, to even my ear sometimes, what it sounds like is that somehow people don't seem to quite get what the proper past forms are. It's not about proper. It's about flux, which is what language is all about. But it's neat stuff. So let's take a look at why it is that the past forms seem to be so squishy and how past really works in a language. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we need to have one language as our focus, and I think it ought to be English. And so marking the past, just in the vanilla sense, We've got two kinds of verbs, and traditionally they're called strong and then weak verbs, kind of <laughs> that voice, actually, for the record. That's how Eeyore laughs. I'm doing Winnie the Pooh with my girls at this point, and you have to have a voice for the characters. And Eeyore's <laughs> That's Eeyore. Strong verbs and weak verbs. Now, the strong verbs are the irregular ones. So this is our world of I run, but yesterday I ran. I see, but yesterday I saw, find, found, think, thought. The ones where you have those changes that are unpredictable and you just kind of have to know. So you've got these strong verbs where the form changes in a way that you wouldn't quite expect. You might wonder, well, why is it that it's run, ran? Why is it that you say see, saw? That isn't the way anybody would plan to mark the past if you sat under a tree and just started building the language from the ground up. And in fact, we've seen how things like that happen. In terms of English and this business of see, saw, run, ran, we can't know exactly how it happened because no matter how far back you trace in terms of what ancestors of English are written, you find that really it was already there. And so you go back to Old English, it was already there and more. You go back to the ancestor of English and all of its close relatives, Proto-Germanic, that can be reconstructed as already having that there. Ancient languages of the Indo-European brood that I'm always talking about, Sanskrit, that's already there. Old Persian, that's already there. And so we can assume that in the big granddaddy language that would have been spoken in Ukraine, this proto-Indo-European that I'm always talking about, that would have already been there. So we can't know exactly. But from watching this sort of thing happen in all kinds of languages all the time, we can know that what it would have been is that first you had, for example, something like run. And then the way that you said 
run in the past was to put some little bit on the end, some little bit of something that we'll never know. Whatever that bit was, was something that made you change the way you said the uh sound in anticipation. And so it's this umlaut thing that I was talking about a few shows back. And so it would have been run, boop, and whatever that boop was, it would be kind of like if you're Let's say you're in a Roadrunner cartoon and you're the coyote and you're walking towards the edge of the cliff because you want to take a peek over. Even before you get to the edge of the cliff, you're going to start walking on your heels and kind of looking upward and over. Then you get to the edge and you're doing it. But you were already doing it back then. That kind of anticipation happens in language, too. And so it would have happened that it would have been something like run. That would have been at the end. And because you know that that is coming, you start saying run. And then the ad drops off after a millennium or two. And next thing you know, you're saying ran. And that's your past form for run. So that's how that would have happened. But then, thank God, we have our week as in our regular verbs where you just put what we think of as ed on the end. So walk, walked. Good. Talk, talked. Great. March, marched. Now, those are interesting in that where did that ed come from? What's an ud? How is that? past. And that actually has a cute story because we can't know for sure, but basically we know that that thing started as did. And so at first it wasn't walked. It was more like walked before. We know that. And then before that, it would have been walk did. Say that enough and you have just some suffix. Walk did. Walked. 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 That's how that would have happened. Now, for those of you who want to go into the weeds a little bit, that wouldn't have happened in English. That would have happened way back in Proto-Germanic sometime. And we surmise it. But almost certainly that is where the ed came from. So talk did became talked. And one way we know it is because it was pronounced as ed regularly for a very long time. And it's it's interesting, one of those things. Jonathan Swift, we think of him as brilliant, Gulliver's Travels, etc. But he could be kind of a sniffy person and he was running around 300 years ago. He was living through a time when ed was going from being pronounced ed to our just d often today. Today, for example, think of blessed you know, in these blessed, you know, whatevers, that's an irregularity, but it used to be that all EDs were pronounced that way. And Jonathan Swift is, you know, a grown man with so much else to think about, but he actually didn't like that in his lifetime, people were starting to say not drudged, but drudged, not you disturbed me, but disturbed, etc. And he actually says at one point, drudged, disturbed, rebuked, fledged, and a thousand others everywhere to be met. We form so jarring a sound and so difficult to utter that I've often wondered how it ever could obtain. That's how he felt about it. Now, of course, as we moved along, as we moved along, we started pronouncing it the way we do. And he sounds kind of odd. That is what I keep around my neck on a chain, like abstractly. I actually think of that as almost a physical object, that anecdote, whenever I quote unquote, don't like something. And, you know, I'm curmudgeonly too. There are plenty of things I don't like in this life. I think if I really emphasize this, then I become Jonathan Swift instead of John McWhorter. So it's just something to always think about. But that is where the strong and the weak verbs come from. Now, what about us and our sense that people are running around messing them up? We are not unique. That has been a complaint leveled by many people for a very long time. For example, William Cobbett. 
He is a man who straddles the 18th and the 19th centuries. You think of him running around in the Jacksonian era. And he's a statesman and he's a polymath and he's a pamphleteer and he's something of a martinet. And he wrote this piece to his son. He wants his son to use the language well. And he's tossing off all these opinions about how English should be spoken. And he's useful because he was partly a British person, partly an American person. And so this isn't about region. This is just somebody speaking English, as it was known at the time. And his sense of what the proper past tense forms are come off as so eccentric to us. And yet, let's remember that he was positioning himself as a person of authority. He was getting this from tendencies that he heard, apparently, in his life. He did not like awoke, didn't like built, didn't like dealt, thought froze was wrong, didn't like spat, didn't like swam, didn't like wove. To him, all of those are wrong, and he doesn't want any son of his running around using those mistaken past forms. And you ask, well, what did he consider proper? And more useful for that is Mr. Robert Loth. And Robert Loth wrote a foundational description of English grammar, at least according to the way he wanted it to be, as somebody who liked mostly ancient languages and was almost the Archbishop of Canterbury. He had his ideas about it. There's no such thing as linguistics. So everybody listen to him. And it's an interesting read today. But Robert Loth lived a long time ago. This is the late 1700s. And he's advising as to what the best English should be. The idea is that now English is going to be a real language and people are going to write serious things in it. And if so, we need to tabulate how the language works, just like Latin was tabulated. And a lot of his ideas were based on a notion that English should be like Latin. But that's another rant. Still, his pasts, just to us, are exotic. It's like you're in East Africa and you find a coelacanth when you go fishing. All sorts of things that he thinks are normal and you're just wondering, where am I? So, for example, sieve. Okay, there's a verb. What's the past tense of it? Well, I would say sieved if I was going to use that verb at all. But to him, it was sod or sit. Now I have sitten. That to him was normal. Talk about spit. She has spitten. The baby has spitten. Or for hold, you can't do anything until you know what it's like to have holden public office. Not held, but holden. I bake. I baked. And then yesterday I have bacon. That to him was quite normal. And the funniest thing is for him, the plural of chick was chicken. So for him, chicken meant two things. It was two or more chicks. So that is somebody who is a grammatical authority at the time. By the way, chicken, I guess it's time for a song cue. Um, listen to this justifiably forgotten pop tune from 1951, which I've always liked very much. This is the wonderful, sexy, people say that she may have been part black, and you can tell from the way she sang, sexy, Dinah, sure. And once I said that and somebody said, actually, she was Jewish, which, yes, is true, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't part black, too. She was, you can tell. Listen, this is her singing a wonderful song. Chick-a-ling-boom, come with me down to Nashville, Tennessee. Chick-a-ling-boom, come with me down to Nashville, Tennessee. You'll find your kind of real home cooking. Why keep looking? Come with me down to Nashville, 
Tennessee. Chick-a-ling bone, come with me down to Nashville, Tennessee. The gals are pals. Our pals. They're always ready to go steady, make you please. Down in Nashville, Tennessee. Chick-a-ling bone, make your plea. And I know some of you are wondering, how do you know all those damn songs? And in this case, it's not that I was collecting ancient shellac of insignificant songs like that. It's always about the Looney Tunes. I got that from Sylvester and Tweety very quickly. This is the cartoon Foul Weather from the early 50s. And it's Granny who I first heard singing this. And I wanted to know the rest of the song. Here she is. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The flux with these forms is absolutely amazing. And so, for example, talk about holding. I hold, I held. Did you know that originally it was I held in the present? So right now, if you look, you'll see that I held a present for you, my little darling, right now. And hold was the past. And so yesterday, I hold seven of them. I can barely get this out. Yesterday, I hold seven of them. But right now, I held four. That's how it went. And it just switched. And so here we are. And we say, I hold. And the past is held. And we can't imagine it any other way. H.L. Mencken did all sorts of things. He wrote journalism, smoked a lot of cigars, liked to call men son of a bitch. There were all sorts of things about H.L. Mencken. But he was also quite the linguist of a sort. And he did foundational work on the American language, as he phrased it. And he reported all sorts of past forms that perfectly normal people were using in the United States when grouchy grammar pusses weren't looking. For example, the past tense of climb being clum and shaking today. But then yesterday I shuck and I drove a car. Just all sorts of them that most of us probably would never use. Many of us might remember, you know, older relatives using them or some of us might actually actually use them, you know, on rainy nights in the dark when we don't think anybody's listening. But these things have always been squishy. Or you know, here's one. Um, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And you think fit. Why isn't it fought? What's fit? Who says that? Well, actually, a lot of people have. And it actually makes sense. Think about it. Bite, bit. Light, lit. Fight, fit. Human brains seek out patterns. Human humans seek out patterns. And so in your mind, if it's bit and it's lit, then shouldn't fight be fit instead of fought, which makes no real sense at all. Fight, fit. Joshua, fit the Battle of Jericho. If you think about it, in a way, it should be that. So you've always got these past forms just kind of sloshing around. Only in the late 1800s, 
does snuck as the past tense of sneak start making it into dictionaries? And it's one of those things. Think even now. Sneak, great verb. What's the past tense of it? Snuck, okay. And that's what most of us would say today, but it always feels a little dirty, snuck. You feel like there's something jokey about it. You feel like it's vaguely wrong. But then what's right? Sneaked, Sneaked, to me at least, sounds a little persnickety, a little proper, and there's a representative number of other people who would feel the same way. Sneaked seems a little snooty. Snuck smells like sneakers. What really is it? It's been switching. It used to be sneaked categorically and then snuck came in, and here we are. It's the sort of thing that you can see all the time. Here's an example. Planet of the Apes, the first movie. There is one where, wow, the reputation is as if it was the Matrix. And I can see how people would have processed it that way at the time. But goodness, I really don't think that what holds up. I remember kids with Planet of the Apes lunchboxes when I was a kid. I didn't get it then. People would play Planet of the Apes. And of course, it was just the usual cops and robbers where basically the apes would you know, chase down the non-apes and push them into the dirt. But never understood it. In any case, let's listen to a little bit of Planet of the Apes and let's listen to the sneak business. Lucius, are you all right? They took me by surprise. Sneaked up on me while I was feeding the horses. What's happened to honor? See, to me, that person is supposed to say snuck, especially with that youthful voice. But no, this was 50 years ago. And so sneaks was more common then than it is now. Or just this week, as I'm recording, the New York Times had a minor headline about a discovery that Neanderthals dived for things. They dived. And I thought to myself, dove, right? Because that's another one that's been switching since the 20th century. Neanderthals dived. I would say the Neanderthals dove myself. Or here's something in my mind, and maybe some of you feel this way, dived, if you're going to use it, sounds like something that happened over and over again. It's habitual. So maybe Neanderthals dive throughout their lives and throughout their reign as a species. But then at that moment, I dove off the cliff and went into the water. It seems to me that it would be all summer we dived and dived and dived until the day that I dove into the water and chipped a tooth on the bottom of the pool or something like that. And if that were true, if that's the way the language came to work, it would be a complication. So notice that if we're finding things like fight becoming fit instead of having its own special form. So that's ironing things out. But then a language is always getting complicated along other tracks. And so suppose it became that dived is for ongoing things and then dove is at just that second. And you kept doing that. And so next thing you knew, you had things like fighted and that's like an ongoing battle. Fought is when somebody just gets socked at one particular moment. Languages can work that way with English, but I guess it just wasn't allowed. All of this stuff is about change. It's about how language moves along. So what we process as mess here in the present tense is very often where the language is going. When people say language is dynamic, if you think about it, dynamic can be used to mean almost anything. Dynamic can mean the way potato salad smells. Language is dynamic partly in that there is always instability. There are always alternate forms. And often that's because the language is deciding to go in a direction different than the one that had been going in before. So, for example, I remember a good while ago hearing someone say, well, the problem was yesterday there are all these mosquitoes and she got bit. She got bit. 
This was a white person of a very colloquial bent. And I remember I had never heard anybody say got bit, but I thought to myself, okay, that I can imagine that would be what somebody would say. And it kind of struck me because it was a setting where standard English had a certain dominance and I was just, it, it stuck out. He got bit. But actually that he got bit is part of a pattern. If you listen to a lot of colloquial American English, and this includes black English, but this is also white Southern. This is also proletarian, white, northeastern. You notice that something's happening, which is that with verbs that have a present form, a past form, and a participle form, the participle is dropping away and leaving just the past form used as the past and the participle. It's becoming a new system. And so, see, saw, seen. I remember after Robin Williams passed away, I was in a green room and I heard, actually it was a very famous person, I'm not going to say who it was, who was in the chair and the person was telling their friends, if only Robin Williams could have saw how much people liked him. And this was a very standard speaker, but things were getting a little colloquial and this person said that, could have saw, so not could have seen. Break, broke, broken. Well, you shouldn't have done broke it. I've heard that a million times. Fall, fell, fallen. He didn't know she had fell is something, if you think about it, somebody would say. Is it quote unquote proper? Doesn't matter. The point is people say it all the time. Or I don't like being took from behind. So take, took, taken. I don't like being took from behind. That's almost the way you would expect it to be said by many people. Oh my God. I don't mean that. That was not intentional. That sentence, it, it, it was a completely different context. Mike, keep this in because the sentence is just too good. There are all sorts of reasons somebody might say that, and it has nothing to do with that. The point being taken from, that's not the way you would put it. It took in many settings. That is what the person would say. The truth is you can almost make this a new grammar. Seen and, and been are exceptions. Somebody might say he could have saw, but more often probably could have seen. Seen for some reason kind of sticks and so does Ben. There's a song in the musical Chicago that illustrates this perfectly. This is the cell block tango and just listen to the the main lyric. He had it coming. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame. If you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it, I bet you you would have done the same. Cicero. This sort of squishiness is just perfectly normal. I'll give you one that I have. I buy, I bought. I bring, I brought. I'm squinting in giving you that data because in my mind, really, it's I buy, I bought, I bring, I bought that chair across the room. I say that very spontaneously and it sounds great to me. If I'm feeling especially spontaneous, being very deliberately spontaneous, it sounds great to me to say, I brought it at the store for $7. My mother used to hate that. She was always correcting me. But in my English, bought and brought are collapsing, as we linguists put it. It sounds perfectly right to me. And if I were a person of true influence and people were going to start talking like me, maybe that collapse would actually happen. That is just the way it goes. We linguists call this sort of thing, not in an individual, but among a whole population. We call it variation. And for linguists, the term variation, there's a kind of a sexy frisson. It's kind of a hot 
topic. It's like nowadays in certain settings when you say epigenetics. Notice, did you, did you feel that little tingle? I'll say it again. Epigenetics. <laughs> See, it's that big thing nowadays. 20 years ago, it was fuzzy categories. If you said fuzzy categories, then you could see people's wine would jiggle a little bit. Variation is like that in linguistics. We like variation, partly because it's dynamic, but partly because variation is often the beginning of language changing. But, you know, the language doesn't get to change. There's always this sense that this stuff is mistakes because we live in a context with high literacy. We live in a highly print-saturated society. And so these things will be said by people when we're just using language as a mouthful of air and H.L. Mencken might record it or I might do something when I'm drinking wine in my living room. But the standard language will tend to stay the way it is. Most of the things that I'm talking about are not going to make it onto the pages of the New York Times anytime soon. So that just means that there is high language and low language. Or if you don't want those value-laden terms, there's the formal language and then there's the real, well, won't put it that way, the informal language. And we just happen to toggle between those two poles. But wow, it would be fun if the language could just do what it does and English could become some different language because it's, it's just so dynamic. And actually, the song cue for this is one of my favorite songs ever. I don't know what I like so much about this song, but it just gives me a profound happiness. Steve Allen, the old talk show host, wrote this song and it was very popular for a little while. This is called This Could Be the Start of Something Big. It just makes me happy. The singers are Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, and they do it perfectly at a perfect point in time. Love this song. Here it is. You're walking along the street, or you're at a party, or else you're alone and then you suddenly dig. You're looking in someone's eyes, you suddenly realize. This could be the start of something big You're lunching at 21 Watching your diet Declining a Charlotte ruse Accepting a fig When out of a clear blue sky It suddenly gallon got And this could be the start of something big There's no controlling the unrolling Of your fate, my friend Who knows what's written in the magic book but when a lover you discover at the gate, my friend, invite her in without a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, by the way, do you want to know what labor has to do with having an orgy? Well, you will not know unless you subscribe to Slate Plus. And Slate Plus 
is a matter of getting a nice little tag, like from a 70s sitcom, a tag at the end of your podcast episode where you get extra information, sometimes extra songs, extra salty anecdotes, etc. And what's more, you don't have to listen to any ads, not me doing them, not anybody else doing them. So no ads, you get a little tag. You can get all that and more for a nominal fee. And yeah, this is this is mercenary, but it pays not only for my podcast, but for all of Slate's podcasts. And the idea is to learn extra bits of things. So having an orgy, want to know how labor is going to be involved? You can only find out if you subscribe to Slate Plus. The past. Let's pull the camera back a little bit and get a sense of how the past works in some other contexts. For example, the perfect. So Elvis has left the building. I know what I have seen, so you can't tell me anything. Or she's been here since 1962. She has been here since 1962. That's different from she was here. She has been here. She was here. Elvis has left the building. Elvis left the building. Notice Elvis left the building. That could have been in 1762. If it's Elvis has left the building, then his leaving and its repercussions are still there. It's a past that still echoes into the present. I've seen these sorts of things since I was a child. It implies that you're still seeing them. That perfect. That feels so natural to any English speaker. But you know, that's actually kind of a Euro fetish. If you're learning a language, chances are if it has something just like that, it's going to be one of the grand old what we call standard average European languages. The further you get away from the Asian peninsula known as Europe, the less likely you're going to have a perfect in just that sense. It's one of those things where fish don't know they're wet. They're things in European languages that seem so normal that actually as languages go are as odd as many of the hoot of thunket things that I'm always showing you in other languages around the world. You know, another one of those things is to have a verb for having. I have a box. What are you doing to it? You know, in many languages, the way that you would say that is there is a box to me. Or in some languages, you'll say just I box. But the idea of saying I possess in my hand, I hold a box. It is something called having. That is not universal. Europe likes that an awful lot compared to a lot of languages elsewhere in the world. In any case, the perfect is one of those things. You know what else the perfect is? The perfect is a particular flavor of jello called peach. I hadn't mentioned it lately. Please go buy some. If anything, make some sort of sculpture out of it and let it harden. Buy it so that they won't take it off the market like they do almost every peculiar product that I enjoy. If I can't have Frankenberry, I really need my peach jello available at your friendly grocers today. Other languages can have many more past tenses than we're used to. We figure, well, we're a refined language because for one thing, we can put it in the past. And then, well, we've got this refinement of the perfect. And so we can get across any nuance. No, our language is like a silverware drawer falling down the steps compared to a lot of languages in particular of Africa. Who'd have thunk it? And so, for example, let's go to Cameroon. Okay, here we are dress lightly. And here, what are they speaking? Bamaleke. That it sounds like music. Yes, but it's the name of a language. Bamaleke. And if you're learning how to do the past in Bamaleke, you've got a lot to learn because you have fine shades. There's one marker that indicates that something happened just now. There's another one that indicates that something happened earlier today. Then there's another one that indicates that something happened yesterday. 
Then there's one that indicates that it happened you know, a while ago, like last month. And then there's another one that indicates that something happened before God was born. And so a good long time ago. And that in Africa is actually quite a common way of doing things. You've got lots of past tenses and future tenses. Our sense that, well, there's the past and there's the future and the past perfect. And no, that that's very coarse in comparison to the way it goes in many languages that cluster around the equator and down below in Africa. Or think about this. Well, when I go to San Francisco, I dread getting caught in traffic on 101. Well, when I went to San Francisco, I got caught. It went. Why isn't it goad? What's went? Well, that's something that we call suppletive in linguistics. And that is that that form is just completely separate. And go is a train wreck in English, just like the verb to be. Actually, went is that verb that we use very little. Otherwise, wend. I wended my way through the forest to grandmother's house or something like that. So go and went come from different roots. But we generally can tell that our verb forms are related. So think, thought, well, at least, you know, begins with th. But there are languages where that sort of complete transformation from tense to tense in a verb is just normal. And there's so much that you have to know. There are languages that are truly pitiless in terms of what they impose on the human memory. There's a language spoken in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is like, you know, Texas and then some in terms of land mass. And yet, depending on how you count it, there are certainly 600 different languages spoken on that island, that whole island of New Guinea, the part that belongs to Indonesia and the part that's an independent nation, the left side and the right side. At least 600, depending on what you call a language, 800 languages. One of the hundreds is called a Lomblok. And talk about going. Go in a long block is keet. Okay. Will go is riat. You just have to know. Went earlier today is yifi. So go, vanilla, keet. Went earlier today, yifi. Not related at all. You went yesterday, it's just e. So yesterday, e. If it was long ago, ye. So none of this just makes any sense. So to speak a long block is to know that with the verb go, you have to know that it's ki, ria, yifi, e, or ye, depending on just when. And it's not only with go, it's with lots of verbs that you have that much difference. By the way, you want some terminology that you can pop out at a party? Hesternal and hodiernal. Hesternal is what you call a form that means yesterday. If you're contrasting it with hodiernal, which means that it happened earlier today, there's a term for that. It's called hodiernal. And then that means that if you're talking about yesterday, then it's hesternal. Pop that out at a party and watch how quickly people can move. In any case, you know, we're at the point where I've just got to give you something about yesterday. Think of yesterday and you know the film of yesterday get the transition you ought to see a very interesting western musical from the mid 50s called red garters and the reason you should see it is because it's an early attempt at camp it's an early attempt even at satire in the sense of mad magazine or saturday night live or parks and recreation they're trying and they don't quite get it but it's an abstract musical western with wonderful songs and one of them is just called lady killer it's got very abstract sets and the people are dancing around singing this song for no reason at all this is lady killer and i just like it here (laughs) 
loves them all. Lady killers, see how they fall. He don't give a moon in Hades, she's a snooty gown. Treats her like the other ladies, she's in his corral. Lady killer, loves them all. That is by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. They wrote every song in the world. They wrote Mona Lisa. They wrote Que Sera Sera. They wrote Silver Bells. And they wrote that Lady Killer. They also wrote this. Listen. All the Some notes I've gotten. Jordan Matelski, thank you for this. Recesses. I said that nobody says recesses. I was wrong. I said that nobody would use recesses because we don't really talk about recess very much and they never occur in the plural. Not true. I am told that in a situation where people were going through a court case and there are, of course, recesses, that's somewhere where people will talk about recesses in the plural. It is an abstraction. And wouldn't you know, the judge apparently referred more than once to recesses rather than recesses. Just what you would expect. I lacked imagination. For me, recess was only about monkey bars and people doing things that I didn't enjoy doing. Thank you for that. And also something that's just kind of fun. I talked about serial verbs, not snap, crackle, pop, but verbs in a series. And I talked about how that tends to be around the equator for some reason. Not always, because when you are in the Netherlands, it is not tropical at all. And yet I was sent, and I regret that I have lost the name of the person who sent it, but I was sent a wonderful Dutch sentence that strings verbs together like anybody's business. This is how you might say, I would like to have seen you have dared to keep sitting and watching. I'd like to have seen you have dared to keep sitting and watching. That's, it gave you well ain's villain zine heaven driven blavin zitten kaken. So seven of them all in a row. Oh, I pronounced it wrong. I'm going to pronounce it a little less wrong. It gave you well ain's villa zine heaven driven blavin zitten kaken. Is that better? Dutch speaking people? I hope so. We're going to go out on something just beautiful. Some things are just beautiful. Art Tatum playing the piano is just beautiful. This man was mostly blind. This man was, and this is not a slur, this is not scuttlebutt. He drank a lot and he liked it that way. He was usually drunk when he played, including when he recorded. And yet, here is Lullaby in Rhythm. This is one of my favorite cuts of music in the world. This is him playing, this is just, you know, talk about before God was born. This cut indicates that at least on some level, God seems to have been. Because just listen to him playing. Goodness 
gracious. That is my favorite piano playing in the whole world. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. And I beg your patience. Just listen to him. That's a human being playing. It, uh, uh, anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am somebody who will never play the piano anything like that, John McWhorter. Thank you.